Ali, thank you for hosting us tonight. Wherever you are, there you are. Maybe you can make me co-host. Oh. I just did. Oh, total host. <laughs> I don't seem to have the co-host capabilities, so it's either one or the other, but I, yeah. You started the recording. And you have your assistant with you tonight. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stop the video. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this evening we have a couple of uh, very interesting chapters, some really juicy stuff. Hoping now we get a lot of uh, good reactions, juicy reactions to some uh, some of this. So. Anyway, let's begin with our usual chants. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Like the six ornaments and the two supreme ones who beautify our world, you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practiced hidden in the forest in sacred solitude, Ong Chenpa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, Shrime Uzer, stainless light, at your feet I pray. Grant your blessings so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. By the way, um, somebody um, mentioned to me this this term, the six ornaments and the two supreme ones, that they hadn't been familiar with that. So I thought I would you know, just explain that really briefly. The two supreme ones, we'll go through that with you. Who are the two supreme ones? Anybody? Me and you and. Now, who are the two supreme ones? Naga and Asanga. A Naga and. And Akisha. Sorry, did I get that wrong? A, nag, a naga, a serpent, and a song. A song? Nagarjuna. A tissue. A tissue and a song. And a tissue, yes. A tisha and Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna is one of the two chariots. Nagarjuna is the father of the what's called the profound lineage of uh, emptiness. Teachings on emptiness. The tradition of uh, understanding the profound nature of reality and a sangha is the other chariot who uh, is the grandfather of the vast tradition of the bodhisattva of uh, um, the endless infinite details and activities of the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva's path and the two supreme ones are uh, sorry the uh, six ornaments are a couple of other guys who are responsible for, um, let's see, first we have Arya Deva 
is one of them who's uh, Nagarjuna's sidekick, his main uh, disciple, Aryadeva. So the two of them are the Madhyamakas, the emptiness people. And then we have uh, Sangha's sidekick is Vasubandhu, his younger brother. And then we have Dignaga and Dharmakirti, who are um, the ornaments of the tradition of logic, a pramana, valid cognition within the Buddhist tradition. And I left out a Sangha and Vasubandhu are the, uh, uh, the grandfathers of the tradition of uh, both the Abhidharma and the uh, complexities and profundities of the, or vastness of the paths, stages of the Bodhisattva, as I said earlier. And um, the last two are Shakya Prabha and Guna Prabha, who are the grandfathers of the explication of the system of uh, precepts the Vinaya precepts. So if you want to know about the precepts of uh, monastic precepts, you would study them. So those are the six uh, ornaments and the two supreme ones. And today we're talking about uh, this chapter. We're going through the chapter four and five, four on karma and five on the spiritual master. And uh, for... Uh, uh, chapter 4, Karma. We have the opening stanza on uh, page something or other, unnumbered, page 35. Existential states, both high and low, with all their joys and sorrows, come, the sage has said, from acts accomplished in the past. Actions that compound samsara of two, are of two kinds, white and black, and they have the nature of the virtues and non-virtues, ten and ten. So the sage is the Buddha, and uh, his famous opening line stanza of the Dhammapada, one of his more famous early uh, teachings of the early tradition, uh, begins with a a similar stanza that uh, whatever we think creates our world. Everything is the activity of karma. Everything that we experience, everything that we observe is all the workings of karma. So then we go, he dives right in and uh, unlike most uh, presentations of uh, karma uh, in terms of the for reminders which focus on the importance of diminishing non-virtue and increasing virtuous karma. He goes into an explanation of sort of the framework for karma. Fascinating, but difficult to understand. And uh, I'm gonna go through it a little bit, only a little bit because we're gonna return to it in uh, uh, some much more depth when we go through the chapters in the commentary uh, on this topic in class uh, eight. This is your mind. So we'll come back to this. And uh, I thought it would be easier to sort of build gradually towards going deeply into it. But we'll, we'll start today. And uh, 
on the second standard their basis basis of the uh, uh, for, first by the way virtues and non-virtues 10 and 10 that means there's 10 of each and uh, their uh, negative actions and the opposite of those negative actions and we'll come to come to them he'll list them soon their basis is the undetermined universal ground so this idea that the uh, there's a universal ground of existence of our being of our mind that's undetermined it's neither virtuous nor non-virtuous but it has a, a neutral quality in sanskrit this is alia it has the nature of being like a mirror reflects everything it's devoid of cognition it doesn't have a subject object cognitive uh, activity upon which lies a consciousness and we use these this this phrase upon which and uh, we have diagrams and descriptions that sort of talk about these different layers as if they're physical layers that lie one on top of another but these are not it's very important to, that this is purely a, a, an analogy or a, a, the the diagrams are all just graphical representations of things that have no uh, lo location, physical location, per se. Upon this lies a consciousness. This consciousness is limpid. This is the alia vijnana. The alia is uh, universal ground, translated here. Vijnana is consciousness together, universal consciousness. Yet objects it does not discern. It creates a ground for manifesting. It is like a clear, untarnished mirror. So again, this consciousness does not does not is not object oriented. In his presentation, just not universally the way it's presented, but uh, this uh, that's something we can talk about uh, probably later. Um, it creates the ground for all manifestation everything that's experienced and it also is like a clear untarnished mirror that emerged uh, Lori Engel all on yeah I ask a question oh for sure okay so the un, the universal ground that's alia is there also something alia consciousness is that the is that the consciousness of yeah. it Upon which lies the consciousness. That's the alia consciousness. consciousness. It's alia. There's an alia and there's an alia consciousness. Yeah, they're related. They have the same last name but different first names. It's, and so, and the and the alia. So it's almost like so it must be subconscious, but it's not physical. So it's not like the actual physical ground. It's a yeah, the term the ground that we're not conscious of, but it has a the is a factor. The term that. ground is used metaphorically. It's like the yeah. ground, this is the ground of being, so it's not a physical place or state, mm -hmm. and it's not exactly equivalent to the subconscious, mm -hmm. uh, but it it vaguely does. So, we actually have a couple of uh, charts diagrams that are sort of helpful. I think maybe we'll just jump into them. 
Let's see, what do we got here? A lot of this and that. Let me try to uh, consciousness and consciousness. See if that works. Here's one of them. It's not Chris's. I really like Chris's, but here's, let's start with this guy. Um, actually, the other is easier. Ah. Can you see that? The blue? Yep. blue. Yep. Yeah, so here we have the fundamental, Alia. Fundamental mm -hmm. being a synonym for uh, universal. Alia. Mm -hmm. Let me make these smaller so they are visible. How's that? Yep, that's great. And then upon that, or within that, is the Alia Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness. And then the description by Lung Chempis says, then right away from that arise the five sense consciousnesses. Boom. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, so let's keep going. Mm -hmm. Then then submerge the five sense consciousnesses whereby objects, form, and other things are grasped without conception. Without conception, the sense consciousnesses operate without conception. They're non-conceptual cognitions. Um, they're like images reflected in the glass. They, they clearly reflect their objects in the glass of the consciousness. But then cognitions follow, dividing apprehender from apprehended, and thus continually there's apprehension and non-apprehension, conceptualization and non-conceptualization. So the next moment after this, the non-conceptual sense consciousness, we have uh, conceptual cognition that consists of a subject and object apprehender and apprehended. Um, these cognitions are defiled mind, which is the seventh consciousness here called the instigator of the kleshas. Eric, I yes. just have a quick question. So the word defile and defiled is used a lot. And yeah. I'm wondering, is there a Sanskrit term for that here? It's a klesha. Oh, that is klesha. Okay. Thanks. Uh, the uh, the past tense of klesha is klishta, so K L I S H T H A klishta, and uh, and then the mental consciousness, mind consciousness, the yi, which uh, in uh, Sanskrit would be mano. Mano Vijnana. So these five sense consciousnesses are Vijnanas. Vijnana is the Sanskrit for consciousness. And you have the I, I can't remember their names in Sanskrit. But then uh, there was this other charge. Let's see. Uh, can you guys see that? The triangle pyramid? Yep. So Chi E is the Chinese uh, a famous. Um, 
Chinese master. He might be Korean. I can't remember. I'm not that familiar with that part of the world. And uh, it's an attempt to correlate that with the Western view of the mind. Oh, uh, well, we'll stick here. So five sense consciousnesses. Then we have the sixth level of consciousness, the mind, conscious mind, the mental sense faculty, uh, which in this chart includes the unconscious, it's not usually included there. And uh, we have some comparison here. And then we have the seventh consciousness, survival, ego, desire, suffering. And then we have the eighth level, personal and collective karma, the uh, collective unconscious in uh, Jung's world is similar. And then the, uh, oh, I didn't touch upon in uh, <clears throat> Chris's chart, I forgot, is the ninth level, fundamentally pure consciousness, Buddha nature. Now to call it a consciousness is a, bit, a little bit of an anomaly or a misnomer because it's not really a consciousness. So in uh, this chart we have Sugata Garbha or Tathagata Garbha, which is Buddha nature. That is sort of the container or the larger, uh, um, the larger space of the entire situation. So continuing on the text, virtue and non-virtue on the next page, 36, verse 3, that derived from coarse thoughts of attachment. Of, of these is the desire realm made based upon the universal ground, the alia of the habitual tendencies. Sorry, this would be the um, alia vishnana's habitual tendencies. Without discernment, clear appearance makes the realm of form. So he's going through, oh, let's see one more share screen. Okay, do you guys see this now? No, let's try that again. Do you guys see uh, another chart? of the universe? Cool. Okay, so this is a chart of our universe. Again, uh, this is not like a, a depiction of a physical arrangement, but they always arrange it in this way as like layers upon each other of the different worlds. I'll go through this briefly and then we'll come back to the text. Um, uh, first, just to make it, uh, give you the whole picture, the universe, or a universe, which is key. Our universe is one of, uh, I think there's probably how many universes are there in the Buddhist scheme? Three or four? Anyone? Five? No. Infinite. Are they infinite? Infinite, thank you. Thank you very much. I was close. With <laughs> infinite, thank you. So they're infinite universes, and uh, this is really a world system that uh, is not uh, known as a universe. There's a, usually a thousand times three universes in a sort of world systems in a universe, but not to quibble. Uh, we have here the... Uh, a little bit hard to see. Okay, so um, here's the 
form realm. Now this one is not great on the three realms. I'll map it out for us. Here's uh, from here downward is the desire realm. So let's drill in there. And we have uh, hell, Narika, hungry ghosts, sorry, hungry ghosts, asuras. Um, these must be animals. And then we have the human realm. So five of the six realms that we're familiar with. And we have six of the god realms within the desire world, the world of desire, the first uh, realm. Now they use the same term, realm, so they're just trying to confuse you. And the Buddhists will do that. They're always trying to confuse you, so don't let them confuse you. But just know they're using the same term. So all of this is, is the uh, realm of desire, so-called, uh, because it's the the major operating uh, energy is desire. And then we have the uh, realm of the jhanas. The, uh, the four absorption states of form, the form absorption states, um, where uh, people who meditate intensively on uh, absorption states can be reborn. And there's, uh, they're arranged according to the scheme of the genres, the first, second, third, and each, these guys each have three parts. And then the fourth jhana has these uh, six parts, usually. And so that's the realm of form from, uh, from here down to here. And then the formless realm. Uh, so uh, rupa loka means form world of form, rupa is form, loka is world. And then we have the uh, a rupa loka, non-form, formless realms that are obtained by uh, the, the karmic momentum of meditating on the formless absorptions. The space, consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception, as they as they describe them in the tradition. So this is the three worlds, and uh, you might recognize some names: Tushita, some places maybe you've heard about. People have uh, written travel logs about them, and there's Akanishta. These are not where the, uh, the future Buddha hangs out. The future Buddha hangs out in the Buddha field, Akanishta, not the uh, realm here. Anyway, uh, that's the way our world looks. The, one of the other interesting things about the chart is that it includes these uh, four elements that make up a world realm of, that's a form world realm sky or space, wind, I don't know, space, I guess, air, water, earth. Now, fire is, is not uh, here. Fire is what consumes, I guess. Anyway, so you have the six realms or the humans, the animals, the hungry ghosts and the hell realms, and then you have the, uh, sorry, and above us are the 
jealous gods and the gods, and then you have three worlds. So six realms, it's better to say six realms and three worlds, the, the world of desire, the form world, and the formless. So then he describes how do those come about. Virtue and non-virtue that derive from coarse thoughts of attachment of these is the desire realm made uh, based upon the universal ground of the habitual tendencies, based upon the Aliyah Vijnana's storehouse of habitual tendencies is the uh, appearance of the desire realm, period. Without discernment, clear appearance makes the realm of form. So the realm of form is within like the Aliyah Vijnana and it's in that sense of uh, just this, just residing in that level of consciousness, of the Aliyah consciousness. Rick, I have a question. Yeah. What does he call it the universal ground of habitual tendencies? Don't we have our own the Aliyah Vijnana with our own habitual tendencies? So I had the feeling that it was a personal matter rather than a universal matter. It's uh, it's both. That, well, that was sort of interesting thing in this chart. Oh, I'm not sharing. Let's see how do I do this. This guy, personal and collective, are in the in the Aliyah Vijnana. You have uh, your own storehouse <clears throat> and uh, there's like an imaginary little wall around your storehouse that's separated from everybody else's mm -hmm. but there's really one Aliyah Vishnana it just feels like you have your own okay thanks without discernment clear appearance makes the realm of form while the formless realm is based upon a habitual state that is completely blank. So there are different gradations of this scheme of the uh, Aliyah Vijnana. Samsara is at all times based upon a twofold adventitious veils, veil. So uh, just a brief reference to the two veils or uh, obscurations that um, bind beings to samsara and uh, he says they're adventitious being, uh, in that they are not permanent and uh, they can be eliminated they're eliminatable because they're adventitious they're adventitious to the buddha nature if they're not uh, real and they're not permanent but they are the, the veil of uh, kleshas or conflicting emotions and the veil of uh, 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 ignorance. The uh, cognitive veil is ignorance. Ignorance about what? Ignorance about the true nature of egolessness and emptiness. Mind rests open, blank, utterly without the apprehension of appearing objects. This is the moment of the universal ground. So now he gives a little bit, little tour, or a little uh, example of what happens in sort of uh, a series of cognitive moments. A typical day in the life of your cognitive stream. 
more like a moment. Can I ask no. a question, Derek? Sure. Um, so in this stanza, he's saying this moment when your mind is utterly blank is the moment of the universal ground. But then in the previous stanza, he's talking about the universal ground of habitual tendencies. It's very confusing. The, uh, I feel like the translators didn't make it totally clear because I can't have to blame it on them. Can't like, right? <laughs> but uh, before that, everything was uh, the three worlds are not in uh, the alia. Uh, they are within the world of the eight consciousness, the three worlds. So now he's he's saying that there is this ninth universal ground. Uh, all those three worlds above the universal ground habitual tendencies is um, an aspect of the eighth consciousness. The eighth okay. consciousness has these uh, generally two or three different aspects. So first is this moment of the universal ground. Then when there's a clear appearance to which there is no grasping, this is the consciousness of the universal ground. So the uh, Within that experience or um, realm, so to speak, of the universal ground, there is a clear appearance with no grasping, but it's, this is the Alaya Vishnana. It's bright and clear and motionless. When through the duality of apprehender and apprehended with the wanting and rejection of the objects of the five sense doors, the seven gatherings perceive sense objects generally one can then speak of seven consciousnesses so uh, Buddhism generally avoids the issue of the creation like the first moment of like where do things come from ultimately in the beginning uh, we generally say things are beginningless so he you'll notice he says um, there's, this is the consciousness of the universal ground, bright, clear, emotions, motionless. And then when through the duality of apprehender and apprehended, he doesn't say like where those came about or how the first moment. This is the sort of unnecessary un, uh, or useless, uh, not helpful type of question that the Buddha remained silent to his famous 14 questions that he refused to give an opinion upon. What is it that is the very first moment causes the causes confusion? What is the cause of that first cause of uh, apprehender and apprehended? He just says they appear because that's what happens. Much more important to, to understand how to how how that process uh, develops and how to undo it through strong habituation to them them, meaning these seven consciousnesses, our body, speech, and mind go airing into the three worlds, desire, form, and formless, compounding sorrow. Paramount in the desire realm are the seven consciousness wallet. Consciousness is while in the realm of form. It is the consciousness of the universal ground, Ali Vishana. And in the formless realm, it is the universal ground bereft of all cognition. So they're actually in uh, the formless realms uh, seem to be dwelling in the alia. It should be understood that while in each realm one of these predominates, the other two are late as it's written you. So they're still there, but they're just not predominate. 
predominant. And then it goes through what happens like in our particular realm, the, the desire realm or world. What's What happens between sleep and wake? And so when beings in the desire realm fall asleep. Uh, and, and let me back up actually one second. In, in the beginning of shloka or stanza four, it says, when the mind rests open blank, utterly without the apprehension of appearing objects, this is the moment of the universal ground. What he's not explaining clearly, but is elaborated on by, by uh, himself and others in many places, is that every moment of, of um, uh, our experience, these, these, this series of moments happens uh, very rapidly, like really rapidly. You know, like a thousand times a second, and so we go through this cycle of of there being this gap of complete openness where we connect with the alia, and then the alia vishnana comes in, and the seven consciousnesses, and we're attached, we're sucked into a, a subject-object cognition, and then it collapses, and then there's another there, there's that moment of complete openness of the alia, and then we recreate the world. So that happens moment by moment. Thus, when beings in the desire realm fall asleep, the five sense consciousness. Derek, yes, um, just one more back to four. Um, and we don't have to get off on a tangent, but I just real quick, when I see something like this, I think of the skandhas and how, you know, the development there of, you know, sensing something and then you get you know, it, you differentiate more and more until it's, you know, it's conceptual and all that. Is there, a, how does that, do the skandhas fit in here or they're just a separate thing? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Like thing. And it's, uh, uh, it's explained well in a, a book called Glimpses of Abhi Dharma, and that's Abhi is spelled A-B-H-I, not Abhi, B-E-Y, Abhi Dharma, uh, where Trungpa Rinpoche describes the skandhas. And in the first chapter, he goes through form, and he says that the form skanda happens within uh, the within consciousness, within the alia of Vishnana. Ah. It's like, what? What's going on here? <laughs> this view is that form is not uh, separate from mind. So it, it, all of the skandhas happen, all five skandhas happen within the context of uh, mind, whereas in the earlier Abhidharma tr uh, tradition, form is not mind, and mind is not matter. But here there's no separate matter. So all the skandhas are within the scheme of the consciousnesses. And when he said... Um, the five sense doors, wanting and rejection of the objects of the five sense doors. Yeah. That would be where you would uh, insert form, the form of objects and the form of the sense bases within which the faculties reside. That uh, those are all not matter; they're all mind, because we're we're in the the tradition that has uh, um, incorporated the idea of mind only in a subtle way. Mm. Mm. How's that bleak? Because <laughs> it's sort of a larger uh, discussion. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
material. And so the five sense consciousnesses step by step dissolve into the mental consciousness. And um, as this subsides into the universal ground, the Alayya Vishnana, there's a state that is completely blank. Again, when we go to sleep, boom, we go into the um, universal ground, the Alayya, an absence of appearing objects. This dissolves into the Dharmadhatu all the way into like the Buddha nature realm. Just by going to sleep, every night this happens to you. Where were you when this happened? That transcends conceptual elaboration. Sense unfolding. Can I ask a question? Yes, sir. The difference between the fundamental alaya, the universal ground, and the Dharmadhatu? Yeah, he sort of uh, merges them here, doesn't he? Yeah, but he also he does talk about the universal ground melting into the Dharmadhatu. Yeah, that that's more the case that they they are separate. Um, in a in a relative sense, they are separate. Uh, but generally, the idea is that uh, the alia um, pure uh, when it's uh, when it's um, in its culmination culminates. <laughs> in the Dharmadhatu. Uh, let's see. Thence unfolding there again arises from the consciousness of the universal ground, a single mental consciousness, the dreaming mind. This causes the appearance of fictive things, cool word, without existence, which are wanted or rejected through further evolution as one wakes from sleep, the sixth sense consciousnesses in engagement with their objects then give rise to karmic action. And thus this sequence manifests continuously day and night. So we have these two sequences, the larger sequence of uh, day, uh, sleep and awake, and the phases of deep sleep and dream. And then while we're awake, we have this very rapid sequence of the cognitive moments that he went through. On the different levels of the realm of form, the minds of being are in the four samadhis. These are the absorption states. Remaining in the consciousness of the universal ground, the Alaya Vishnana. From this, a subtle consciousness may at times arise, whereby objects are detected. Every once in a while, I like to go from one of the uh, form of realm absorptions to another. There is a uh, a subconsciousness arises that it perceives the qualities of that absorption state. But the mind will mostly rest in stillness through the habit gained of concentration. While on the different levels of the formless realm, the mind is in the state of the universal ground, alia, in boundless space, which is one of the four uh, formless realms, and the remaining three, it stays one-pointedly in calm abiding. The mind's continuum supported by the four name aggregates. What are the four name aggregates? Can anyone name the four name aggregates? Feeling, perception, formation, consciousness. Thank you. So in the traditional scheme of the five skandhas, you have one form, uh, one matter skanda or aggregate and four name. So name is this... Uh, way to uh, sum up the mental, the mind skandhas. Uh, extremely subtle feeling and perception, conditioning factors and consciousness. There's, he just named them right there. 
You're not awake from single-pointed calm, abiding for an entire kalpa and plant no seeds of virtue and discernment. So you, don't, you don't generate further karmic momentum in these states. The resting of the mind and the samadhis and absorption without form. So he's, he's calling the formless, uh, the formless absorptions, he's calling absorptions without form. And then the uh, form absorptions, he's calling the samadhis. Uh, both of these, uh, the resting of the mind in either of these is the result of former deeds. When these come to exhaustion, the mind must then transmigrate. Time's up, move on. Now, since this mind is indeterminate because it's in a state of ignorance, it's ever and again productive of misguided karma. Of, I'm sorry, misguided karmic sequences and cause and fruit. In the samsaric world, therefore, free yourself from all such states of mind. There's a little uh, sort of a comment on the, the effort to obtain absorption states, which are extremely blissful, extremely powerful and pleasant. But they don't really... Uh, they don't really help you to achieve enlightenment per se. So they can be a, a total uh, trap. Therefore, uh, the desire... Eric, yes, ma'am? Um, is that what he means by a state of ignorance? Yes. That you're caught. By yeah, there, there's no quality of knowing in those states. Uh-huh. So the, the cognitive, uh, the wisdom faculty is dormant. Are there and are there um, branches of Buddhism that would disagree with that statement? The uh, uh, the generally the earlier tradition of Buddhism, uh, things like that might call Theravada, things like that. Uh, traditional, let's say traditional Theravada traditions focus on the development of the absorptions and samadhis using his terminology as a way to um, as an aid for developing insight uh, all traditions acknowledge that insight is the only factor that can cause or, or bring about liberation but uh, the earlier traditions um, emphasize and, and Buddha himself taught endlessly the absorption states as a way to uh, strengthen the ability to uh, apply insight. And then throughout the history of Buddhism, the endless conversation and debate and discussion, which is the conversation that need not be gotten into, is uh, how much concentration is enough. We know that you need insight, but how much concentration is enough? How much do you need? Uh, let's see, therefore, the, uh, we're on 10 again, on 38. Therefore, the desire realm mind, through that to which it has grown used, supplies the cause of rebirth, high or low, and indeed of liberation. So it's in the desire realm where we generate karma. By day, the seven consciousnesses dominate. The other two the eighth and ninth, the same in nature are their retinue. This means that in the case of visual consciousness that apprehends a form, the aspect of its thought-free clarity is the universal, sorry, the universal ground consciousness, the Aliyah Vishnana, while the aspect of no thought that happens in that cognition is the universal ground itself, because it there's that flash of no 
cognition at the beginning of the cognitive series is the Aliya. It should be understood that for the six remaining consciousnesses, it is just the same. So every time we hear something, smell, taste, there's this pr progression of first a gap and then of the Aliya and then the Aliya Vishnana and then the subject object. And then the, the seventh, the sixth consciousness and the seventh consciousness kick in with uh, concept and commentary and attachment and fixation. Respectively, in times of deep sleep, dream, and waking, our first universal ground, then the second. So, um, in the deep sleep, the universal ground is predominant. In the second dream, the, the universal ground consciousness, the Aliyah Vishnana, is prominent, together with the mental consciousness is operating in, in sleep, dream sleep, rather. Then third, waking state, the sixth sense consciousness is predominant. Therefore, these three periods are successively referred to as the times of one, two, and one, and of all that have a single nature. He's just like giving it sort of nice little way of referring to these states in terms of their, uh, the presence or activation of the Aliyah and Aliyah Vishnana upon mind. So finally we get into the sort of heart of the normal way of uh, approaching this fourth reminder. Based upon the mind, all action have their actions have their roots in ignorance, concomitant with craving, hatred, and confusion. From this are generated actions, white and black, which in their turn compound samsara. So everything's based upon the mind. And then uh, upon that way, the root of all karma, the root of samsara is ignorance. And then we have the three poisons, craving, hatred, and confusion. So uh, important to distinguish the quality of confusion within the three poisons from the root ignorance. And then from this, we have uh, actions, virtuous white and non-virtuous black, the uh, traditional way of assigning colors to uh, good and bad, sort of universal themes, unfortunately. Non-virtue makes one fall from high to low samsaric states. When differentiated, it is tenfold classified as those of body, sorry, three of body, four of speech, and three of mind. So these are the 10 non-virtues. Uh, briefly, the act of killing is to put to death a living being intentionally without mistaking the identity. So to to in, uh, to know that it's a living being that you're you're uh, uh, terminating the life of, and to do it intentionally. So you step on something by mistake; it's not quite as bad. Things like that. Similar to this are all aggressive actions, beating, striking, and so on, whereby beings are assaulted. So, uh, uh, killing is the most heinous, most uh, extreme uh, example of this first non-virtue, uh, non but uh, it includes uh, all forms of aggressive activity. Uh, the act of um, taking what has not been given, stealing, is to steal another's property. Similar to this is the acquisition through the seat of others' goods. Sexual misconduct 
is to have relations with one who is committed to another. Similar to this are all improper modes of intercourse. So you have like the sort of root, a non-virtue, uh, which is the extreme, and then you have sort of gradations along a spectrum. And uh, I'm sure you picked up on the, the slant of, of uh, that time period. And so far in history, most time periods in human history, of uh, that there's there's proper intercourse and improper types of intercourse. And I don't think we have to go into the details of that here. Lying means to utter falsehood, which, when understood, affects a change in someone else's mind. Oh, except to back up a second and say that, uh, um, you know, the the uh, cultural slant that's incorporated into this scheme is, is huge. And we'll see that also big time in the spiritual master chapter of, like, the way people should behave, cultural norms, you know. So... Um, uh, uh, in particular, sexual relations that don't conform to, you know, some uh, assumed standard of propriety are bad. <laughs> um, so, uh, big, huge uh, issue in, in Buddhism, uh, particularly these days. Lying is uttering falsehood when understood affects a change in someone else's mind. So if you lie to someone and they don't understand what you're saying and it doesn't impact what they think or do, it's not as bad. Similar to this is speaking truth in order to deceive divisive speech. The same things that bring estrangement like this is repeating other words to create discord. Worthless chatter is to talk about unwholesome texts and fooleries <laughs> worthless chatter probably none of you have ever ever done that and this includes light careless conversation such as the weather today was great unrelated to the dharma harsh speech is violent words that pierce the heart and similar to this is sweet talk that brings misery to others Ooh. I was sharper than a serpent's tongue. No. Uh, covetousness is not to tolerate uh, the wealth of others and the wish to have it for oneself, and like this is to one another's glory, erudition, and the like. Malice is to hate and wish harm to others, and similar is angrily refusing to give help. Wrong view is to believe in permanence or nihilism. So, wrong view has these different aspects uh, to believe in the extremes of. Uh, uh, eternity or permanence and nihilism, nihilism, sorry, and to uh, not believe in karma, to not accept karma is wrong view, and similar is every kind of false description and denial. So those were the extremes. Into their objects and one's evil motive, attitude, and conduct, the ten virtues bring forth four effects, fully ripened, similar to cause, proliferating, conditioning. So this is the way karma is explained. And karma is uh, often mistakenly understood in the West to be the law of cause and effect, as in physics, as in uh, every uh, cause has an equal and opposite effect, like the way matter operates. And that's not what karma is. Karma is about the world of the psyche, the world of the, of the unconscious ground, the the. the universal ground consciousness, the Aliyah Vishnana, 
where things get exaggerated, things get blown out of proportion, or things get distorted, or things lie dormant for years or lifetimes, and then come back and manifest. Uh, so car the workings of karma are extremely subtle. Um, but you see, first, there's uh, four uh, factors that impact the severity of the karmic momentum created by an activity, which is the object, uh, one's motive, attitude, and conduct. And then uh, there's these four different aspects of the way that karma manifests in a sort of un somewhat unpredictable, sort of not uh, materialistically uh, framed way of uh, ripening. Let's see. The ten non-virtues, small in their intensity, when fully ripen, when ripen, will ripen fully in the sorrows of the realm of animals. Those of moderate intensity will ripen fully in the sorrows of the Pratas. Those of great intensity will bring about the pains of hell. So this is sort of a logical scheme of like, what's the intensity of it? it impacts the ripening of uh, karmic activity. Um, there are two effects resembling their cause. The first is to be born with the proclivity to do what one has done. And now, he's couched everything about karma in terms of uh, rebirth, different lifetimes. But karma operates within the same lifetime. It doesn't uh, uh, necessitate uh, really uh, delving into the scheme of lifetimes in, in some way, in some level, in order to appreciate the way karma works, even if you don't believe in other lifetimes. Uh, but it, it impacts your experience moment to moment. It, it creates a state of mind or a situation around you. Um, there are two effects uh, resembling their cause. The first to be born with proclivity, and uh, this is said to be the active consequences resembling its cause. And uh, he gives example, although high birth is achieved, one's life is short and dogged by many ills. One has no wealth and one, what one has is shared in common with one's enemy. One's spouse is unattractive and becomes an enemy. Usually people blame their spouse for things like this. And later he talks about having a spouse that uh, it's a pain in the butt. Normally people blame the spouse for this, but really it's your own karma to have a spouse like that. So suck it up. Uh, let's see. Much abused when it's deceived by others. So uh, I'm not going to go through all of this because it would take forever in detail, but uh, skipping to 21, the conditioning effects. So you mentioned fully ripened similar to cause proliferating and conditioning. And we went through, uh, let's see, similar to the cause I missed, proliferating. Where is proliferating? I guess it goes conditioning effect of actions, ripens as the outer world. So the world that we experience, it's the so-called outer world, is the, uh, um, the result of our activities in the past. In the present situation of impure dependent nature, the consequence of killing is to take one's birth and pour on prosperous lands. And, and again, we touch upon this sort of uh, possible cultural 
uh, intense bias of like, oh, if you're born poor and in like a really bad neighborhood, that's your karma and you deserve them. That's totally not the way karma should be understood. Total uh, misconstrual. Um, but uh, I'd rather not go through all of these in detail. So we're running that short on time. Eric? Yes, ma'am. Can I just, these, there's such detail here, kind of, <laughs> kind of like what we experienced last week too. Um, is this how? I mean, how? How did they come up with this scheme in such detail? I mean, going into plants that, and it just seems mind blowing to me to that they had. So many um, categories. It's mind-blowing, isn't it, that they like go through this in such detail? Yeah. And, and so the big question is, is how literally do you take these things? You know, he, he didn't have it here, but I remember reading uh, Gampopa's version of this years ago, and he talks about how if you lie a lot in this life, in the next life you'll be reborn with bad breath, halitosis. <laughs> so, so you know, you got to think for yourself. Um, similar to the hells, like what's the purpose of describing this in such detail? Is this the way things actually are? Does karma operate in in, in this way, or is there some ulterior, ulterior motive here or purpose going on here? Um, you know, so every time we hear the Dharma. We have to actually be critical in our examination of the teachings, not just take things word for word, not take things literally. But what is, what's being gotten at? And uh, so that's for us to decide in, in this case. Um, I am certainly of the opinion that it should be understood more generally and not in such specific terms. Uh, 22, the proliferating fruit of action means that evil actions, once completed, will provoke a disproportionate degree of suffering. This is the most interesting one where it's not just like a, a calculated situation of cause and effect, but it actually has a greater result than the cause. Um, Briefly, the ten non-virtues are like poison that, when taken slightly, moderately, or to great extent, produces an immense degree of pain. I beg you, strive to spurn them as the enemies they are. That sort of sums up the situation. The ten good actions propel one to the higher realms, consisting in virtuously and consciously abandoning the ten non-virtues. He names them and then uh, goes along. These actions, when of less intensity, result in human birth, and it goes through the various scheme of uh, the, the virtuous activities. Um, now skipping to 27. So briefly in 26, he's pointing out that virtuous activities uh, lead you into happier realms of samsara, but you're still within samsara. So you're still within the world of cause and effect and rebirth. And only in 27, supreme virtue that gives rise to liberation 
from this scheme, from the whole world of old uh, samsara, drives samsara far away. It strives for peace and utterly transcends the action of white and black, whereby within the wheel of life, the high and lower states are all compounded. Stainless causes such as virtues that give rise to liberation comprise the ten virtuous actions, the samadhis and the formless concentration, the six perfections, and the rest. All that is contained in the five paths. So the five paths is the, the traditional scheme of the Buddhist path. And um, uh, we can come back to that in the future. It'll be uh, come up again. We can go through that. Moreover, when one realizes the no-self of both the persons and phenomena, then through virtue that conjoins both skillful means and wisdom, while dwelling neither in existence nor in peace, one works for beings good and gains the boundless state of Buddhahood. This yogic virtue thus goes far beyond the world. So this clearly is the objective in our way of uh, working with karma. And then some interesting comments upon uh, the scheme of karma and how it relates to different aspects of the past. Well, the gathering of merit. So we talked about these two accumulations of merit and wisdom. And so you gather or accumulate them. So while the gathering of merit is conceptual, the gathering of wisdom is not conceptual. Together, conjoined, they purify the twofold veil of emotional defilements and cognitive mistakes and manifest the twofold kaya. The twofold kaya is the two kayas of an enlightened being. The kaya of the form kaya, the rupa kaya of a Buddha, and the dharma kaya of a Buddha. Uh, you may be more used to this, the three kayas, which is a breakdown of the four form kaya into the samoga kaya and the nirmana kaya. Uh, but uh, often there, those two are summed up as the form kaya, the rupa kaya. Here, the sphere of meditation and post-meditation. So, dharma kaya, meditation, post-meditation, rupa kaya, form kaya. They are in common being stained, but are unstained in noble ones. A reference to Buddha nature. By their successive practice, liberation is attained. Is obtained. Um, Buddha potential, Buddha nature, Tathagata Garbha is the basis of the virtue that gives rise to liberation. Luminosity is the character of the mind. It is the stainless element, the potential naturally present, whose appearing aspect is the twofold kaya, has been described by nine comparisons. There's this traditional way of giving nine analogies for Buddha nature. The nature of compassion present from the first is the potential that may be developed. So we have these two aspects of Buddha nature, the potential naturally present. It's the, uh, the sort of fully ripened uh, aspect of the two kayas and the potential that may be developed as the, what happens along the paths. So the Sugata has said, its root is primal wisdom, luminous, self-knowing, and it's, it's, it is virtue, being free of the three poisons. These two potentials awake. Two bodhicittas are engendered perfectly, ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. Ultimate bodhicitta, the, the aspiration or the, the mind of enlightenment, ultimate bodhicitta. It's the the uh, mind that understands the true nature of reality, 
That's the union of unconditional wisdom and unconditional compassion. And then relative bodhicitta, the aspiration to uh, achieve enlightenment, to help all sentient beings achieve enlightenment, and then the engagement in that process. Um, compassion is made manifest in the gathering of marriage on a relative level. This is associated with the Vaz empowerment. Suddenly he brings in the four Abhishekas of the Vajrayana tradition, which is unusual, but uh, fascinating. Of the two that follow in the generation stage that purifies, so the first three of the four empowerments he's saying are uh, the accumulation of merit. And the, they are incorporated into what's called the generation stage, which sometimes is translated as the development stage. To understand the empty nature of reality is the gathering of ultimate primordial wisdom, that accumulation, uh, sorry, that uh, of the two accumulations, the accumulation of wisdom. And this is related to the fourth Abhishek or empowerment, that of word, the word empowerment. And the perfection stage of the two stages i.e. Mahamudra. Interesting, he doesn't mention Dzogchen. It just says Mahamudra. <laughs> I don't really know why. By means of proper meditation and the growth of these two stages in tandem is the implication. Defilements are transformed into primordial wisdom. Through ever-growing virtue thus, the veils upon the Buddha element are cleansed away since they were adventitious and thus is seen the spotless sunlight of the Dharmakaya and the Rupakaya, the two Kayas. The ten virtues, the samadhis, and the formless concentration, the most excellent things this world affords make up the gathering of merit, that which goes beyond the world, the utter absence of conception, constitutes the gathering of highest wisdom. When these fields of meditation and post-meditation are practiced simultaneously together and in union, every excellence is gained. So, so this idea of the two wings of the of the bodhisattva, the bird of the bodhisattva, uh, constantly uh, training ourselves in both these aspects: merit, compassion, virtue, and wisdom, understanding of emptiness. Lori, uh, did you say Lori? You saw I wanted to say. I did. So I I just I just think it's interesting the way it keeps coming back that even though you don't want your ultimate aspiration to be in an, an absorption state, either form or formless absorption, a samadhi or a formless concentration, those are states along the path that you want to practice. Yeah, he cleaves the traditional Mahayana viewpoint, which is also in uh, Shanti Deva's Bodhicharavatara, the way of the Bodhisattva, where he uh, presents the absorption state when he presents the the meditation channel. Yeah, yeah. That they yeah. they use that, they include that traditional scheme. Right. And uh, what what it, the in the Mahayana and, and particularly in the later Mahayana that develops into Vajrayana, the way that they use the absorptions are a, a very different way than they're used in the earlier tradition. They're used in the earlier tradition to uh, help you become uh, uh, a, a being of the first, of the path of seeing, 
or liberation and above. And mm -hmm. later Mahayana tradition, they're, they're used after you've achieved the path of seeing, they're used to purify the different realms. Mm -hmm. So to purify your attachment to the form and formless realms by, by cultivating the, the absorptions and the samadhis. Uh, Mary Beth had something. Mary Beth. Yeah, could I ask a question? Yeah, for sure. So, gathering of merit is conceptual. Yes. And that happens in the development and the generation stage, right? That's correct. And then, so then the completion stage or the perfection stage and the gathering of wisdom, that's non-conceptual. Bingo. Okay, thank you. Thank you for summing that up for us. That's helpful. Um, so then he goes through, he goes through the 10 virtues. Uh, talks about the 10 virtues in some detail and uses the same scheme of the conditioning effect and the proliferating consequence and the consequence resembling the cause and so forth. So we'll skip that detail. And um, the interesting part is, uh, is 43. Starting with 42, he said, this is actions. When we examine them in terms of their essence, they're without intrinsic being, yet they make as in a dream all kinds of joy and sorrow, but they're not real existing things, although the mind believes them so, and yet the causal process is infallible. There's this sort of contradictory situation where karma is, does not have intrinsic essence, but does not have true nature, but it operates infallibly. The way appearances manifest is the infallible working of karma, such as the deep nature of arising through dependence, not existent yet not inexistent or non-existent. Neither is it both. So uh, avoiding the two extremes of uh, permanence and nihilism, nihilism. Um, however, as the deed, so will its fruition be. This is the domain of the two wisdoms of the two truths, the relative and the ultimate. Understanding there's these two levels of reality that are going on all the time in the same place, at the same time. If you hold the nature and the multiplicity of things, so the ultimate truth is uh, the realm of the nature, the true nature of reality and the... Uh, realm of the relative truth is the multiplicity of things, the uh, infinite manifestation of appearances, phenomena. And this has been well explained by the Buddha, the omniscient one. Now, those who scorn this law of karma cause and food are students of the nihilistic view outside the Dharma. And they're very terrible beings. They're really bad. Um, skipping to 44, the law of karma cause and fruit, compassion and gathering and merit. All this is but provisional teaching fit for children. So he's quoting what some people who misunderstand the two truths might end up saying. Those who like believe emptiness. The worst thing in the world is to believe in emptiness as if emptiness is real and existing. Like 
like it's the truth and cleave to it and fixate on emptiness and use that and use this understanding of emptiness in the relative world. Apply emptiness to the relative world. It's the biggest mistake you can make. Say that actions have no effect. Doesn't matter. Suffering doesn't matter. Biggest mistake. So he quotes them, all this is but professional teaching fit for children. Enlightenment will not be gained thereby. Great yogis should remain without any intention to action. They should meditate upon reality that is like space, such as the definitive instruction. The view of those who speak like this is of all views, the most nihilistic. They have embraced the lowest of all paths. How strange this is. They want a fruit but have annulled its cause. So they ignore the cause of liberation, but focus conceptually in their talk on the, the, the result of uh, liberation. Reality is but space-like void. What need is there to meditate? If it is not so, then even if one meditates, such efforts are of no avail. If meditation on mere voidness leads to liberation, even those with minds completely blank attain enlightenment. So he's, he's, this is now Longchenpa speaking about how uh, this, this type of person misunderstands emptiness and uh, has a completely incorrect way of meditating on emptiness as like a blankness. Emptiness is far from blankness. Uh, because those whose minds are blank would be enlightened like animals and, uh, and uh, some other peoples. But since those per people have asserted meditation cause and its result, they thus establish, throw far away such faulty paths as these. The true authentic path asserts the arising independence of both cause and fruit, the natural union of skillful means and wisdom through the causality of non-existent but appearing acts through meditation on the non-existent but appearing path, the fruit is gained appearing and yet non-existent. So the, the, the true path is understanding the, the difference of the two levels of truth, relative and ultimate, and applying them appropriately to different aspects of our path, of our activity, of our being. Um, and in summary, on 47, that's all the causal processes whereby samsara is contrived to be abandoned and all the acts that are cause of liberation should be earnestly performed. So this is his admonition. And then his uh, dedication made a rain of dharma, cooling and delightful, caused the two accumulations to expand. And the field of beings' minds, exhausted by the karma and defilements of samsara, may their minds today find rest. So we're at this crossroad. We have 20 minutes to go through the spiritual master. So let's dive in a little bit and see how we do. And uh, maybe we can vary or plan a return to it or something. But uh, basically, this is really challenging, uh, controversial chapter. And I don't, uh, I'm not going to go through it in detail because uh, I think you probably have read it. And... Um, he goes, I'll just sort of summarize briefly and then we can talk about it. He, he talks about um, the importance of keeping company with holy beings as opposed to keeping company with uh, uh, lowly sort of beings. And then he describes uh, the, the uh, body, speech, and mind of these holy beings. 
and uh, talks about in particular the uh, amazing qualities of tantric masters using endless analogies just over and over again in uh, stanza six on page 53 and uh, talks about the teacher as the fourth jewel which is tradition traditional and the Vajrayanas to talk about the guru as the fourth jewel meaning in addition to the three jewels of the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha and that he talks about the necessity of having a teacher someone who can give us feedback um, and uh, he, he talks about different ways of understanding what a, who a teacher might be or what a teacher might be and stands uh, 12 this is consider thus your teacher as a doctor and uh, this teacher's teaching as medicine regard yourself as sick and take your practice as your therapy the gain in both happiness and peace and so forth so he, he gives a little indication of that there's different levels of uh, uh, understanding of who and what a teacher is and Trump Rinpoche as uh, many of you know like elaborated this more fully where where we, we gain benefit from associating with teachers on three different levels. Teachers who are like a, a physician who just um, uh, diagnose our situation and, and uh, prescribe the medicine. Tell us, explain the Dharma, uh, the words and the meaning of the Dharma um, in the way that I am attempting feebly to do. Like, you know, what does this mean? How do we practice? what what to do and what not to do and then there's um uh he doesn't go into it here but there's spiritual friends it's a sort of middle level that's more like the mahayana level of like somebody who uh, uh you become uh friends with and, and learn like what is their experience on the path this is this is the main scheme for most of us that a, a teacher will take and uh this type of teacher can range from just other friends of ours, Sangha members, who we just talk about, like, what do you do? You know, how's your practice? Are you experiencing this difficulty? I have that difficulty. I have this question. I, I can't accept reincarnation. It's like, drives me crazy, you know? Just those are spiritual friends, people that you can talk to about these things. And also, uh, in particular, people like that who've been on the path for a zillion years and gotten nowhere, and you can ask them, you know, so after 40 years, nothing, this, <laughs> you know, so you can poke fun at them in that way. Uh, but hopefully they've gained a little bit of uh, understanding that they can share with you. And then there's Vajra masters, tantric masters who give empowerment and grant entry into Vajrayana practice, which is a very different thing, and much higher bar of both um, personal accomplishment on the, on the side of that, uh, spiritual master and um, much more uh, heaviness in terms of how to relate to such a, a being that you take as your tantric master and this is where the, the controversial stuff really starts talking about how to um, serve the teacher and uh, he, he gives this is a uh, sort of traditional stuff in, in the Buddhist, basically the Asian tradition, a lot of it, starting in um, number 18. Well, actually, actually backing up to, to, to talk about the controversial stuff, um, 
15 fortunate disciples have great faith and wisdom, like all of you. And then in 16 disciples such as these are ever mindful of their teacher's qualities. They never think they have defects. So, you know, going back to the hells, going back to the detail on the karmic cause and effect, you gotta, you got to challenge these things and be critical, you know. In this day and age, do we, do we just um, blindly accept that whatever a teacher, a Vajra master does is okay? Huge issues, right? Um, all the teacher does not like should be avoided and strive instead to please him. You notice that they use the masculine pronoun endlessly, right? So again, another thing that's this cultural hangover from the past that all of you here um, are burdened with changing. It's your job. It's up to you. you got to change that. And um, never disobey what he commands regarding uh, as himself all those around him who he cherishes. Never take his entourage as your disciples. No, no, no. <laughs> in the presence of the teacher, hold and check your body speech. It might be very demure. Don't stretch out your legs. This is such a funny one. In the West, you know, people come to talks with Tibetan teachers, you know, and they sit in the front row. This happens all the time. They sit in the front row, you know, and like two hours into the talk, you know, and like we're all like dying of uh, aching, you know. People start leaning back and stretching their legs out right straight to the teacher. The worst possible thing from their point of view, the most disrespectful thing you can do to a Tibetan teacher is to stick your feet in her or his direction. Just FYI, if you want to like, you know, go along with the scheme. Don't sit in Vajra posture. Don't show off. Don't turn your back. You approach a teacher, say hello. You don't like turn around right away. It's little things like this are very, very funny. Uh, you don't have a somber look. You don't crease your face with frowns in front of your teacher. <laughs> don't speak out of turn. This is like, like a, a Puritan grade school or something. Don't lie or slander others and their teachers present. Don't discuss other person's faults or speak unpleasurably or harshly. Avoid all careless and unseemly talk. Generally, they say like with your teacher, you don't speak until your teacher speaks. Don't cover what the teacher owns or wish to harm or malice. Uh, wish no harm or malice to himself or his entourage and the various deeds and conduct of the teacher. See no error, no hypocrisy. Do not think his deeds are wrong or even slightly untoward. All such false mistaken views should be rejected. So, I think I think this is a good place to stop and like unmute everybody and just like start yelling all at once, maybe. Like, what, what do people think of this? Any reaction? Is this unusual? Have people encountered this trip? Are any of I thought it was patriarchal and very conceptual. Patriarchal and very conceptual. Bingo. <laughs> very, like, uh, structure. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think I think when we get into things like this, we're 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 super getting into relative. We're not talking about absolute at this level. Uh, when it comes down to some of these things of like relating to another human being in this particular way, that's as as was just mentioned. That's that's pretty much uh, conceptual, right? And really, I think of it as like we need to eventually drop, at least in my practice, drop some of these sort of like constructs and get to like the root of which it's really being communicated. That's how I think about it, at least. So the question is, how do you, is there like some sort of middle path here? Because uh, there still has to be some sense of the preciousness of the teachings that this teacher offers. Yeah, I mean, we live in a relative world, and we have to deal with the relative world. I don't think that we can drop concepts altogether, nor do we want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how do we develop a sort of reasonable middle ground way of dealing with this situation? Tease out the cultural overlay and tease out the patriarchy. Yeah. Part of that cultural oh. overlay. Yeah. But it's not just up to us. It's also up to the teachers too. Exactly. Uh, you can vote with your feet, as they say, right? You know, if there are teachers who uh, cleave to this uh, way of uh, expectation, then maybe they're not the right teacher for you. All right. So, so two things. One is that um, if it is a good teacher, then doing all these things are fine. You know, if it's a teacher with no issues or bad intentions then it's then following this is fine i think i mean there's um the other point is that on 17 he does talk about evil teachers yes and you should avoid them and talks about all their faults thank you yes i had a similar reaction that uh at first i was like um having a negative reaction to this or I think I wrote in the margins like this is a dangerous precedent and could allow I mean, you see this all the time in people being manipulative teachers and doing all sorts of horrible things with this kind of precedent um, just in general not necessarily in Buddhism specifically but then when he went on to sort of say but beware of evil teachers and that whole thing I started to feel a little bit better about um, some of this stuff but then I was starting to question how to figure out who are the good teachers and who are the evil teachers. And um, that seems like an important piece <laughs> to being able to pull this up. Yeah, totally. I mean, they don't have a sign on them that says I'm an evil teacher, right? <laughs> what do other people think about this whole thing? Anyone uh, else? No, yeah. He redeemed himself in, in uh, stanza 27. Thank goodness that was in there. Otherwise... It was all going down my drain pretty fast. So at least there's this acknowledgement, as Emily just said, of the that there are negative teachers. Alan, to say something. This was written many hundreds of years ago. I don't think it's surprising what he says. It's not surprising within the within the particular culture and particular time. It all makes sense. The question is. As you say, what do we do with it now? And, you know, talk about evil teachers. I think for me, what's most uh, difficult is 
you know, it's not black and white. Of course, as you know, there's a teacher who's going to you, you, It's hard to hear you. Can you speak? Yeah, I mean, it's not all black and white. It's, you know, it's not as though there are evil teachers and good teachers and we have to spurn the evil teachers. There are teachers who, uh, for example, uh, you hear a teacher giving a talk, right? And there are things you don't like about the talk. You think, you think that's incorrect. You think that's uh, missing the point. You have, you have criticisms to make. So what do you do with that? You know, do you just kind of silence yourself and not, not share your opinions with anyone else because you're not, you're not supposed to criticize your teacher? Uh, it, it seems to me that it takes tremendous amount of, of self-knowledge. You have to really be honest with yourself to know when you're, when you're griping because there are some things that you personally don't like and when you, you have some insight into, into a, a, let's say, a fault that needs to be aired. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Who else? Yeah, um, just picking up on Alan's comments, um, to, to put this in historical context, there was a great article in Sunday's Times. I don't know if anyone saw it. Uh, it was written by an art historian about um, uh, who gave the Buddha his face and all the statuary. But it, but it's a, it, it's, it's more than an analysis of art history. It's, it's history and it's uh, cultural history. And I, uh, I just recommend anyone to uh, check it out. It's in the, uh, what's it called, the T Magazine. I think that's Travel Magazine, if you can get access to it in the New York Times. It's, it's, it's a pretty good article. If anyone else has, has read it. it Kevin, maybe send me and I can circulate it. I, I was going to send it to you, uh, uh, Derek, but it's like, 45 uh, megabits and uh, um, megabytes, and I, I thought it would uh, uh, crash everyone's system. I oh. think there's an online version. I, I was seeing, I didn't read the whole thing, but saw it on my phone, so yeah. I can also see if I can I, find it there. I made a PDF out of it, but it's, but it's huge, and, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't uh, okay. condense it. What else? Dropbox. You can send the link also. Well, that's right, you can you can easily get on the link, but the Times gives you so many articles, and then they cut you off unless you're paying. Work on the technicalities of this all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Precious moment here for more input and feedback on this this really big issue here. Who else? What else? I would have a little something to say. Please. Um, my experience is that uh, in the age of strife that we live in. Um, you know, our teachers are also human beings, even if they are great masters, everybody said us, but they can do mistakes and we have sometimes to be patient and generous with them and uh, to forgive, we have to be able to forgive them sometimes, I think. Excellent, yeah, such good points. Who else, what else? Um, Eric Strong, raise his hand. And I had just changed my mind. Um, I, I just, I am so confused. I don't know how to square 
my Vajrayana practice or vows with the chaos I see around me and the history of chaos, both of the Sangha Amin and other Tibetan and other Buddhist Sanghas. And it's just, I have no idea. I have no idea how to, because I see the power in just following the instructions and I see the danger in the chaos and I'm just stumped and it's awful. I think that is really, uh, really the main comment that it's like, there's these two sides to this system and it's very hard to on the one hand. Um, Derek, I think people need to mute because you're, you're coming through kind of. Uh, how's that? I muted everyone just briefly and I'll open up while I blab for a minute. But um, let's see. Somebody chatted at me. Ah. Um, like, so uh, for, first thing is that you need to examine the teacher for quite some time before you uh, um, take on a teacher. You know, this whole thing of he presents, you know, how to, the, the uh, first the amazing teacher and the qualities of that teacher. Um, and then there's the evil teacher. So how do you know? who's an amazing teacher and, a, and an evil teacher. You've got to spend quite some time. And, and uh, oftentimes texts and teachers and other people will tell you, you've got to spend a long time before you commit to a teacher. It's not really a wise thing to immediately uh, get a, feel a connection to somebody and dive in right away. You know, go with the connection. The, that, that first moment of connection, but then, then based on that connection, check out the teacher. Don't like sign on the dot, you know, the the metaphorical line. Don't like give go whole, all in. Take literally like I don't know a year or two, you know, and and look at look at the options. What other teachers are available today, and talk to their sangha. Study what is that teacher's path? What do they present? What practices? And really see if you can uh, get to know the, a teacher before you join in with a follow along with a teacher. And so that you get a sense of what whether this teacher is an evil teacher and, and a, a good teacher. And still, you never know. Teachers can be, uh, as someone just said, they're human beings. They're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. You know, maybe the Buddha was perfect, uh, but but you know, even if you read his life story, and there, there's times where he like tells people to do things, and then uh, you know, there's there's instances where there's complications, and so you have to retain your critical mind. You can't just uh, you know say, okay, I've checked him out or her out for so long, and now I'm I'm all in it, and I can't you know. Uh, I can't criticize because there is this this aspect of when you receive transmissions from a teacher. At that point, during that transmission, you have to hold that teacher as being like the emanation or the representative of the enlightened mind of the Buddha, because otherwise you're getting a transmission from you know the non-enlightened mind. You know, so you want to get a transmission from the enlightened quality of the Buddha, but sort of like having the two truths, uh, relative and ultimate, you know. So in, in that scheme, you're taking the ultimate view. When the teacher 
is is giving that transmission. And then in the rest of the time, you have to have uh, some relative world common sense still, it seems. Um, Henrietta, I'll unmute you. Oh, I was just going to say that also the Sangha is an important part of evaluating um, their yeah. representation of the teacher. Totally, totally. Got to check out the Sangha and what they're like. Are they like puffed up, arrogant, or are they this or that? So, what else? Anyone else? Chris, thanks. Oh, you got it. I think it's really important that we situate this conversation about relating with a guru in a larger Vajrayana context of pure perception or called sacred world in other places. Uh, this idea of relating with the entire display of phenomena as fundamentally pure. And because we are very small-minded, ignorant beings, it's easy, or rather than doing that to everything all at once, it's easier to start with like one person and the guru is kind of like a training wheels for developing pure perception. So if we're trying to develop a perception that views things like coronavirus, you know, global capitalism, uh, environmental devastation as fundamentally pure, then, you know, the guru's human faults, if we find those to be very difficult, uh, we're going to have a lot of trouble with the bigger things. Of course, this needs to be balanced with the real risks of abuse, which we've seen rampantly all over the place. Um, but I, I just wanted to add that caveat to this conversation. Wow, what a cool perspective. Thank you for that. And, and uh, I don't know if your dog agrees with you totally, but um, Zoe, is that a hand raised? Zoe, I'll go for it. Um, yeah, sort of to uh, agree with all the various points that have been, have been made. Um, I think that it is vital to remember the sort of ultimate view when practicing Vajrayana at all times, because it is the path of fruition. So in every practice, no matter how relative it is, there's still the enlightened or ultimate perspective, which is that the guru is none other than like the very fact that you can perceive enlightenment or project that onto someone is by virtue of the fact that it, it, it resides within you. It is your mind's own nature. And that's the nature of mind to project in that outward way. And so through the manifestation and relationship of the, with the guru, you come to recognize that over time, but it is such a delicate dance, right? Of recognizing the guru is human and maintaining your own, um, you can have devotion, but remember that the seed of devotion is for your own enlightenment and that your practice to that, that, that relationship with the teacher is a sacred bond of, of coming closer and closer to your own mind. And so, um, yeah, it is a practice in pure perception, but it is a dangerous dance. And it is very evident that it's, you know, even though people are like, oh, you know, it's, think, consider the time and the context, but actually it's so, it's been something that has been brought to um, a Western early Buddhism and still exists today. And I, you know, I lived at a monastery for like almost a decade. So I'm very well aware of like, you know, living in Tibet on the Hudson and having people, you know, e people literally eating the crumbs that would fall off of my teacher's cup and being like, this is it, you know, and 
so it is it is a delicate dance, and I think it's one that uh, I. <laughs> I'm still working on, but I would say definitely remembering the ultimate view and to keep your own safety and awareness throughout the process. And also remembering the guru is human and that you can hold those two truths simultaneously, I think. Wow, that was great. That's cool. Thank you. It's two levels. Any Anyone else? Oh, Mary Beth, thanks. I love what Zoe said. And it makes me wonder if part of that, um, like learning to accept uh, things in the guru that might be challenging, it also speaks to learning how to accept those things like in like myself, for instance, that like I found, I find like challenging. So I, I I just, I kind of like to sort of think about that and sort of maybe hear about that a little bit more, like how that informs in a sort of a reverse way, I guess. I don't know. Interesting. Confusing, yeah. but. Well, a huge topic. And uh, uh, I think the take home is uh, to be careful. And uh, Vajrayana is a, a dangerous path for the ego and uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said it's much better not to enter it <laughs> but if you do you you have to stay on it <laughs> you have to keep with it um, so you have to really think beforehand if you're if you want to do this and same with the teacher you have to really examine and uh, be aware that there's an in, inside you know the inner world and the outer world of the teacher and if you if you go by the outer world of the teacher, you may be surprised by the inner world sometime later on. So before you sign on, see if you can get a, a sense of the inner world of a teacher, if possible. Um, just so just to to wrap it up and close by coming back to the text, uh, Longchenpa ends the chapter by talking about Guru Yoga. And uh, gives a, a wonderful uh, description of how to do guru yoga, how to do uh, the practice of uh, uh, the development stage, practice of um, of uh, joining the mind, uh, merging your mind with the teacher, and uh, then uh, points out that that practice is the supreme practice. Guru Yoga is the most supreme, uh, important, essential practice. And so basically, um, other practices that don't incorporate Guru Yoga are, are preparatory practices. And um, all other practices include Guru Yoga. So when you do Yidam practice or Deity Yoga practice, practices where you visualize the presence of or yourself as the deity, those are guru yoga practices in essence. But if you don't realize that, you're missing the point then. So you have to realize that those uh, sadhana practices are guru yoga practices because Vajrayana is based on that notion of the guru, the teacher being the fourth jewel in the sense of the teacher, if, if the teacher is genuine, being the embodiment of wakefulness and demonstrating 
the possibility of wakefulness in human form to us, just like us, making it real so that it's no longer this sort of fictive thing that exists in the textbooks of the, the Middle Ages sort of thing and not in the real world, brings it into the real world. Uh, but it is a dangerous uh, endeavor. So, so be patient and check, check things out as thoroughly as you can. Any final comments before we close? Um, I'll share, so I shared in the, in the chat channel, um, I guess the Dalai Lama is giving a two, two night, two nights worth of classes on one of Nagarjuna's, uh, works. So I shared the link to that if anyone's interested in like watching those, cause I think it's free. Uh, it's an Indian standard time. So I don't know what that means in terms of our time zones. Right. But, uh, just wanted to share that cause I thought that was a cool thing that maybe this, this group would, uh, appreciate having access to. Cool. Thank you, Noir. The time difference is about nine and a half hours. India is the only place in the world that has a half hour difference. <laughs> time zone that has the half hour. Just yeah. sort of. Nepal has the 45 minutes. We have the same in Canada with the Maritimes. No. Half hour? Really? No, yeah, Finland. And also, Nepal has 15 minutes with Delhi. Kathmandu has 15 minutes more than Delhi. Oh, my God. I'm so naive. I didn't know all these things. That's amazing. <laughs> well, uh, you, uh, maybe you saw the video, you know. Uh, you believe in time? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's close with the dedication. And we can just all do it together and create a big racket. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing, from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I be all beings, by the confidence of the golden sun, and the great east, may the lotus may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, all beings enjoy profound, brilliant, glory. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Check out that article. It's good. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Kevin. Thank Have you. Bye. 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 Bye.